All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to River City. It is good to be with you this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors that's here. Uh, I just want to say, if you are new or visiting, welcome. It is good to have you. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected or plugged into the community here at River City, we would love to do that. I would genuinely love to meet you. I said last week that uh, you can trust me because I have a good beard, and that's just the key sign of someone who's trustworthy. And then there was a guy here last week who had legitimately had a good beard, and he was like, "Mm, I don't know. All right, well... It's okay, but like, we'll see, you know, anyways. Uh, So anyways, but I would genuinely love to get to know you, and so we are grateful that you are here. Uh, Looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Just a note before we begin, if if you have any questions about our pastor this morning or something I say, I want you to just feel free, like, you can come ask me about that. I don't always have all the answers, but I'd love to be helped, I'd love to help you grow and answer any questions I can, and so feel free, like, you can come find me. This year, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, just chunk by chunk, working our way through. And uh, the main theme of the whole book of Matthew, if you've been with us, the, the big E on the I chart of the Gospel of Matthew is the proclamation that Jesus is the Messianic King that throughout the Old Testament, God had been promising, would come to, to rule and to reign, to come bring about his kingly rule and reign on the earth, that, that he would be the one who would come to set all things right. And over and over and over again throughout Matthew's gospel, what Jesus has been trying to get the disciples to see is that his coming wasn't the the consummation of that kingdom. Instead, it was the inauguration of that kingdom. That his first coming hadn't been the end of the story. Instead, it was the beginning of the end. And so for the past two weeks, we have been in this final extended section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's chapter 24 through 25. It's a section of teaching known as the Olivet Discourse. And in this section, what Jesus is doing is he's responding some, to some questions that the disciples, and if we're honest, really all of us have, about the end of the story. You see, Jesus is talking in these chapters about the end of the world and about his imminent kingly return and about the consummation of his kingdom. And what we've seen so far is that what Jesus wants these disciples to get, what, what he is in, what's so important that they understand, both them and for us, is that as we think about the end of the story, what Jesus wants is for our eyes to be fixed on him. He's the author of the story, the king of the kingdom. He's the one who we can hope in confidently, the one who we can trust in implicitly, and the one whose return we are, in, we are to, in, to expect imminently. And we saw that when our hope and our trust is set on him and his words, then we'll have everything that we need to wait for his return. Well, we'll have everything that we need to live every day ready for the last day when he returns. You see, and it's the events of this last day that are the focus of Jesus' closing words here in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, in the last two chapters, he's spoken uh, to the disciples about what they can expect will precede that last day. And he's spoken to them about the imminence, yet uncertain timing of that last day. But in our passage this morning, Jesus clearly and emphatically highlights what will happen on that day. And the reality of Jesus' words is that what will happen on that day is his just kingly judgment of all people. You see, Jesus wanted the disciples and us to know that although he had come the first time in humility as a suffering servant who would lay down his life as a savior, when he comes again, it will be wildly different. You see, when he returns, he will come as a king, the victorious king of glory, who is coming in power and as the just judge of all people. You see, and as we study this morning, what I want you to see in God's word is is that 
It's our relationship with the king. It's our relationship to King Jesus that is revealed in our actions towards his people that is the basis of his just judgment. You see, our relationship with King Jesus is the basis of his just judgment on that day. And the relationship that we have with him is revealed in the way that we treat people that Jesus has identified himself with, his brothers and sisters. And so with that in mind, We'll pray and read our passage together. It's a tough one this morning, I'll be honest with you. But it's good for our hearts to sit under God's teaching and to put ourselves under the authority of Jesus' word. And so to that end, let's pray and study this morning. King Jesus, we come before you and we just say, we really need you. God, we really need you to be the one that shapes and guides our time together this morning. We need you to be the, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say this morning is is fruitful and good, that it has life and power. God, my words alone can't do that. God, and we need you to enable us to hear and respond, to, to affect our hearts in such a way that our lives are changed in light of our time in your word. And so, God, we just come with a humble dependence on you saying that we really need you. And so, God, I ask that you would be gracious in our time this morning. God, our our topic is hard. It's not light. It's not easy. It really is challenging. God, but it is urgently important. And so I ask, God, for our good and for your great glory, God, would you be shaping our time together? Would you meet us in the midst of it this morning? God, would you change us into a people that loves and lives for you every day? We need you for that, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. The end of chapter 25 this morning, beginning in verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and you have gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you as stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes, and close you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. You see, and they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, Whenever you did not do one of these, uh, one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, before we begin this morning, I just want to acknowledge, just on the front end, Jesus' words this morning are talking about his just judgment of all people. And that's just not something we like to talk about. It's not something that's comfortable to talk about. I'll just shoot straight with you. It's not something I'm stoked to talk about either, right? 
But it is his word, and so it's so important that we study. You see, we live in a world where the highest sin is to pass judgment on someone else. We go to great lengths to avoid being judgmental or appearing judgmental or even sounding judgmental. You see, in our plague-like avoidance of judgment, it plays into the way that we think about God and the way that we relate to him as well. You see, we want to embrace a God of love and forgiveness and unquestioning acceptance, but we shy away from or we just flat out reject a God who would judge us, who would judge our actions or our attitudes, who would tell us what is right and what is wrong. We, we bristle at that. You see, and the truth is that a God of love and no judgment is not a God worth worshiping at all. You see, that's not a God who is good or who is just. You see, without God's just judgment, there is no love. You see, if I told my wife that I loved her, but I did not long for justice. I did not pursue judgment for when someone harmed her. You see, that's not love. You see, that's indifference at best. And really what it is is hate. You see, the reality is, is that what we actually want is a God of love and forgiveness for us and a God of a judgment and justice for others. You see, when we have been sinned against, we want immediate justice. But when we sin against others, we want a God of unending mercy and unending grace. You see, one pastor says it this way, we are all just selective hypocrites. You see, that's true of all of us, not just some of us. That's true of all of us. That's our default reaction. You see, and the, the reason why we bristle at the idea of a God who judges is because we are all sinners, every last one of us who are under God's just judgment. You see, the most offensive thing about the Bible is, is the, and the message of Jesus in our world is not the Bible's view of sexuality or marriage or money or politics or any of that kind of stuff. It is the proclamation that you and I are not God, that Jesus is, and that as God, he alone has the ability and the right to justly judge us. David Platt, in his book, Counterculture, he writes this, tell any modern person that there is a God who sustains, owns, defines, rules, and will one day judge him or her, and that person will balk in offense. Any person would, and every person has. This is our natural reaction to God. You see, our pastors this morning, it is a proclamation that Jesus is God, that he is king, and that one day he is, he is going to return to sit on his glorious throne, consummating the kingdom that his first coming had inaugurated. And that day, on that day, will, he will justly judge all people. And I know this morning as we begin, that is not a popular idea. That is not one everyone is just like pumping their fists about. But it is what Jesus' words clearly say this morning. And so we must wrestle with the reality of his words and how they are meant to inform and transform our lives, both for his glory and for our good. And so as we study Jesus' words this morning about his return and about his just judgment, I want to highlight five ways the passage describes what his kingly judgment will be like. Five ways the passage describes what Jesus' kingly judgment will be like. And the first is this, the king's judgment will be personal. You see, the passage begins with Jesus foreshadowing a day when he will come and return in glory and in person. Verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. You see, the passage and the rest of the Bible affirms this, that Jesus is coming back 
for real. Not spiritually, not metaphorically, not existentially. He's not sending a representative. The king is coming back to rule and to reign in person. And he is coming back and on the day of his return, he will execute a just judgment of all people. As one commentator writes, that is tremendously significant. It means that we shall not be confronted at the end of all things by one who is alien to us and does not understand us, but rather one who has such an intimate understanding of us that he has shared our existence within our very skin. We shall at the end be confronted by what it means to be truly human, and that is both our hope and our shame. You see, the king is coming back, and his return will be in person but the, thing, the second thing we see is that the king's judgment will also be exhaustive. It will include everyone from everywhere. Verse 32 says, all of the nations will be gathered before him. You see, everyone from everywhere will stand before the king on that day. There will be no exceptions. There will be no favoritism. There will be no excuses. You see, yes, you may choose to live however you wish. You may choose to believe whatever you want. You may choose to do whatever you want to do. But on that day, you and everyone else will stand and give an account to the king of all things. Like we saw in the parable last week of the ten bridesmaids, on that day you will stand on your own. You see, readiness for the king's return realizes that there are some things you cannot borrow, that you must possess for yourself. You see, the foolish bridesmaids we saw last week, they could not borrow the oil of the wise ones. You see, it is not the faith of your parents or the quality of your church. It is not the the faith of those around you that makes you right with God or that puts you in right standing with him. You see, it is your own heart and your own life surrendered to him as Savior and as King and as Lord. That is the one thing that makes you ready for his return. You see, in his kingdom, I said this last week, there are no family visas. There are no marriage visas. You see, you will stand before him, the just judge of all, on the day of his return on your own. You see, and when he returns, we will all stand before him and either we will have surrendered to him in faith, put him as our savior and our forgiver and our leader, or you will not have. You see, it is something you must do for yourself. No one else can do it for you. You see, and that leads us to the third thing we see. You see, the king's judgment, it will be divisive. You see, verse 32 continues, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. You see, the king's judgment will divide people into one of two camps, into the camp of sheep or the camp of goats. Not literal sheep or goats, but right, I like descriptions, right? And what is critical for us to see this morning and what we cannot miss is the basis on which Jesus' just judgment is executed. You see, it is easy to read this passage and quickly and to think, well, it seems pretty obvious that the, the difference between these two groups is just what they did or did not do to those who were poor or sick or needy or in prison, what they did or did not do to the least of these. And I just need you to see this morning, that is dangerously misguided for two critically important reasons. You see, the first is that it misses the who. It misses who the least of these are, and also it misses why the who matters. You see, this passage is often misunderstood and misused to teach that sacrificially serving anyone who is poor or sick or needy or in prison is the same thing as serving Jesus. But that is not what the passage says. Verse 40, Jesus says this, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Everywhere else in Matthew's gospel, brothers and sisters, it means biological siblings or spiritual family. I just need you to hear this. I am not saying that as Christians we should not care about serving sacrificially those who are poor and needy. That is not what I am saying this morning. There are countless other passages that encourage and call us to that. But that is not what is the point of this one here this morning. You see, the point here is that Jesus is identifying himself with his followers, with those who have trusted him and become his spiritual family. It's reminiscent of Acts chapter 9 when, when, the, when Saul at this point is on the road to Damascus, headed there to, to hunt down Christians and murder them. And the ruling, reigning, risen King Jesus comes and knocks him off his horse. And his words to Saul on that day are, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus, he intimately aligns with his people. He's not just far off and distant. He is deeply committed to them. You see, it's Jesus' words that you saw that day where you're messing with my people, you are messing with me. You see, there is something incredibly rich and incredibly important as we see there. You see, and understanding who Jesus is identifying with in this passage is crucial to understanding why serving those people matters so much. You see, Jesus' words here, they echo what he taught earlier in Matthew 10. We read when he sent the disciples out on a on mission to declare and to demonstrate the message of the gospel and his kingly rule and reign. And in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, he says to the disciples, the passage closes, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And if anyone who gives even a cup of cold water to one of those little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. You see, in the ancient world, taking someone into your home, receiving someone, welcoming someone with intimacy and friendship, it was a sign of support. It was a sign of, of agreeing with and affirming what that person stood for and what they were about. You see, and Jesus equates the welcome of his representatives with the acceptance of their message, with the acceptance of him. You see, and so what he's saying is the same thing in our passage this morning. He's saying how we treat Christians in need, especially those who are in need because of their commitment to his mission and to the reality of his purposes and their relationship with him, that's the thing that reveals the reality of our relationship with the king. One commentator puts it this way. Jesus is saying, if you really believe my gospel, how can you not be moved to help those who are suffering because of their commitment to my message? You see, the basis for the king's just judgment isn't ultimately people's actions, towards anyone in need, but towards his disciples, his people in need. You see, because those actions reveal the reality of, the, of your heart and the truth about your relationship with him. You see, the heart of Christianity is not good deeds. The heart of Christianity is relationship with King Jesus. You see, in that relationship, it changes our lives. It gets worked out. It gets revealed in a, in a loving and sacrificial care and concern for others, especially those who are suffering because of their commitment to Jesus and his mission and his gospel. You see, there are two main ways you can tell what someone believes. You can look at what they say and you can look at what they do. And just spoiler alert, what people do is an exponentially better revelation of what they believe than what they say actions they do indeed speak louder than words you see saving faith is changing faith if your faith has not changed you if it doesn't shape the way that you relate to other people especially those who are jesus's followers then it hasn't saved you i'll just be honest with you i wrestled with this passage this week 
Not in the sense of doubting my faith or in the sense of, of fearing judgment, but just in the sense of asking God, how do you want me to respond to you? What, is it, what do you want me to do in response to your word? I want to put myself under your good kingly authority. You see, the reality is, is that you and I, we are wildly isolated in our country to the needs of Jesus' people all around the world who are suffering for their commitment to him. We are wildly isolated. We live in a country where persecution should have a lowercase p all the time on it. You see, I know that for me this week, one of the things that God was just making my heart aware of is that my unawareness of the needs of God's people who are suffering for his purposes, both locally and nationally and globally, that my unawareness about what is happening in that world is something that needs to change. It's the first thing that needs to change. And for, for me this week, I was thankful for our partnership with the Acts 29 Church Planning Network, which reminds us and connects us with churches that are being planted all over the country and all over the, the, the world in places that are often difficult and hard, places that need prayer, places that need resources. And so I was thankful for the reminder of the connections that we have and, and the opportunities to awareness that we have there. I'm also thankful for organizations like the Voice of Martyrs that serve to help make us aware of the reality of people who are suffering for Jesus' kingdom, for being his kingdom representatives all over the world, so that we might pray and that we might give towards the kingdoms advancing in those places. And so I just need you to know, like, I don't have all the answers to what it looks like to take the super clear next step with all of that. I don't, I don't have this absolute clarity, but I just want to invite you this morning to begin to pray and ask God, what might he be call, how might he be calling you to care about people, his people, whether locally or nationally or globally, that are suffering and in need because of their commitment to him and his purposes? You see, the king's judgment will divide people based on their relationship with him and their relationship with him, Jesus says, is revealed in their actions. But it's not only the divisiveness of the king's judgment that stands out in our passage this morning. It's the surprising response to the king's judgment we see. You see, both the sheep and the goats, they're surprised by the king's judgment. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? When did we serve you? Verse 44, those on his left, the the goats will also answer, when did we see you? When did we miss you? And the surprise of both of these groups reveals something incredibly important about their motives and their hearts. It reveals the truth about what's going on in their hearts. You see, the goats, those on Jesus' left, they ask him, when did we see you and not serve you? And Jesus says, that's the problem. He says, you serve only when you see the king. Because you're trying to get something from the king. You see, and when I am not clearly present, neither are your good deeds. You see, Jesus is telling the goats, your lack of love and concern for my people who are hurting, it reveals that your heart has not been changed by the gospel. It reveals that you are not a citizen of my kingdom. It reveals that you are not a child of the king. And in contrast, the sheep's surprise to Jesus' words, it reveals that their hearts truly have been changed by the gospel. Hearts that are motivated to care for and to sacrificially love and serve others based, rooted in the love that they have been served with and loved with and cared for with. You see, hearts that are motivated by the gospel. You see, they weren't serving other people to get something from God. They weren't trying to earn something from him. They weren't trying to impress him. When Jesus tells them that they were serving him, when they were serving the least of these, they are genuinely shocked. They are surprised. 
One commentator highlights this. Their surprise is not unimportant. It shows clearly that their salvation did not depend on their good works. For in doing those works, they must have known that they were doing things that other people did not do. But clearly, their kindness to the needy was not in order to gain a reward and merit salvation, but was part of the way they lived in response to what Jesus had done in them and for them. You see, one of the most central ideas to the truth about the gospel is that your identity leads to your doing, not the other way around. Your identity leads to your doing, not the other way around. An apple tree, it produces apples, not in order to become an apple tree, but because it already is. You see, a follower of Jesus sacrificially loves and serves those are in need, especially King Jesus' people, because that is who they have become in Christ. That is at the root of their identity in him. You see, they're not after the king's stuff, they're after the king's heart. You see, in response to who their actions reveal them to be, it is the king's great joy to give them their inheritance, the eternal joy of his kingdom that he has prepared for them. You see, and that leads us to the last thing we see about the king's judgment. The king's judgment this morning we see will be eternal. You see, the king will proclaim his just judgment over all people, dividing them into either the category of sheep or goats. And then in verse 46... It says they will go away to eternal punishment or eternal life. You see, the king's judgment will be personal. It will be exhaustive. It will be divisive. It will be surprising. And it will be everlasting. We saw this last week. There is no recourse for the burgled homeowner. There are no do-overs. All is lost. There is no second chance for the unfaithful or lazy servants we read about last week. Their punishment is immediate. It is final. There is no court of appeals. There is no back door for the foolish bridesmaids who are too late to the party. The party is closed. They are not on the guest list. You see, the king's just judgment on that day will be final. And it will be eternal, and it will lead to either one of two things. It will lead to either eternal blessing or eternal punishment. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You see, the king has prepared a kingdom for his people. It is one of unending life and unending joy and unending blessing because it is one where the king will be face to face with his people. You see, I do not know what heaven will be like exactly. But what I do know is that it will be better than anything I could ever possibly imagine because the king I have loved, the one who I have longed for and lived for, will be there. That's the good news about what heaven will be like. You see, this kingdom is not a reward for good works, but it is a result of saving relationship with the king. You see, it is something that the king's people could never have earned but are freely given because of their relationship with him. The late Warren Wearsby writes this, an inheritance is based on birth because, these, because they had been born again through faith. The sheep have inherited the kingdom. I just want to pause here for a moment and to let the gracious and hope-filled joy of Jesus' words soak into your hearts this morning. 
See, Jesus' words this morning are a proclamation for his people that this world is not the end. That whatever pain or joy this world has to offer, however long or short, however weak or great, it is but a flash in the pan. And what awaits God's people is an unending, incomparable life of blessing and joy and relationship with him in his presence, full of love and grace and life and joy. And if that doesn't capture your affections and your heart this morning, then there is something tragically wrong. You see, the life the king offers and extends, the the life Jesus foreshadows, is one of incomparable blessing and of unimaginable joy. But the eternal blessing in heaven is not the only eternal outcome of the king's judgment. Verse 41 and 46 read this way, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and then they will go away to eternal, into eternal punishment. I just need you to hear this. We are not the fire and brimstone church. Like, that's just not who I am. That's not how we roll. That's not, like, that's just not who we are. But Jesus' words this morning are no less than that. You see, in contrast to the eternal blessing of those who have embraced Christ, there is eternal unending, unrelenting punishment for those who have not. You see, those who have not surrendered to Christ, are not simply, they don't simply cease to exist, either immediately or eventually. You see, hell is a place of eternal punishment for God's enemies. One commentator says it this way, hell is not a place where the devil torments sinners. Hell is a place where the devil is tormented alongside them. You see, many people in modern times want to just completely do away with the doctrine of eternal punishment. And if we're honest, nobody really likes that. Nobody is just cheering for that. But as one commentator writes, he says, the net result of the elimination of the teaching of eternal punishment from the Bible would be the loss of the gospel itself. You see, the blessing of the gospel can be retained only if the law is seen as the completely serious will of a holy God to whom sin is a grievous rebellion requiring his punishment if not forgiven. You see, this is not in my notes. I just need to say this this morning. One of the things that is so shocking to us about the idea of a God who would punish sin is because we don't understand what sin is. We think sin is bad behavior. We think it's wrong choices. We think it's just simple mistakes. That is not the way the Bible describes sin. The way that the Bible describes sin is as mutinous rebellion. You see, at the heart of sin is that each and every one of us have said to the king of the universe, I reject your good rule and authority. I will live as I see fit. I will do as I see fit. I will enthrone myself as the arbiter of what is true and right and good. I will be king. I will be God. You see, that is at the root of what sin is. You see, sin is a mutinous rebellion against the king of the universe. You see, and there must be just punishment. Otherwise, God is not good. And he is not just. You see, at the heart of the agony of the eternal punishment of hell is the exact opposite of what is at the heart of the eternal blessing of heaven. It's the presence of God. You see, the blessing of heaven is marked by the eternal, unending presence of the king who lives in the kingdom that he has prepared for his people. And the curse of hell is marked by the complete and forever utter absence of that king. You see, verse 41, the king says to those on his left, depart from me. St. Augustine, 
He wrote this, to be lost out of the kingdom of God, to be an exile from the city of God, to be alienated from the life of God, to have no share in that great goodness which God has laid up for them that fear him, has wrought out for them that that trust in him would be a punishment so great that supposing it to be eternal, no torments that we know of continued through as many ages of man's imagination can conceive could possibly be compared with. I need the gravity of Jesus' words. I need them to sink into your hearts this morning. You see, Jesus is not playing a game. The stakes are immeasurably, incalculably high. The late R.C. Sproul, he said this, that most Americans today believe that justification is by death alone, which means that all you have to do to to get to heaven is to die. Everyone who dies automatically goes. You see, in this passage, it flies in the face of that thinking. It flies in the face of the the pluralistic thinking of our world. You see, we are not all taking different roads up the same mountain. We will not all end up in the same place. You see, Jesus' words here are abundantly, immeasurably, absolutely clear. You see, when he returns, he will justly judge all people. And every person will either go to heaven or hell. And that's the truth of his word. You see, I need you to hear this this morning. You see, there is one God and his name is Jesus. There is one king over all of the universe and his name is Jesus. There is one just judge over all people and his name is Jesus. You see, and your eternal destiny hinges on how you respond to him. I said this at Easter when we studied his resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then everything I have given my life towards has been an absolute waste. Oh, but if he did, and of which there is compelling evidence, then there are no more significant or important words spoken by anyone in all of human history that we must respond to. And so the question this morning is, how are we to respond to Jesus' words about the day of his return and about his just judgment? I just need you to hear this. Jesus' words this morning, they're not meant to scare his disciples. They're not meant to cause them to, to just be full of fear. They're not meant to send them into some paranoid frenzy about and list checking about, have I seen Jesus? Did, did I miss him? I don't know if I served him. If I, if I missed him, I don't know. That's not the point of Jesus' words this morning. Instead, what his point is that he's calling the disciples to confidently and to wholly and to persistently to give themselves all to him and to his kingdom to lives that are lived in a response to who he is and all that he has done i see and more than anything what i think jesus words are meant to do this morning is to give the disciples hope and to give them clarity about the future a few weeks ago my grandpa passed away he was a man who loved jesus and lived for him And I am absolutely sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that this morning my grandpa is worshiping Jesus with every fiber of his renewed heavenly body. And if I'm honest, I'm jealous of where he's at because I'd love to be there. That sounds amazing. Last week I got a call from my mom who had recently gotten off the phone with uh, one of my grandpa's doctors, a man who had gone to church his whole life, who had even served with Mother Teresa in India for a time, but who was not sure about where my grandpa was at. 
He said in an uncertain tone to my mom, I, I hope that he's in heaven. He was a good man. He, he did many good things. In response, my mom wrote him this letter. See if I can make it. Doctor, you have been on my mind continually since our brief conversation last Friday, and my father cared deeply for you and was extremely grateful for the services that you provided, and I feel he would want me to share these next words. I feel he would want me to share these next words with you so that you could be confident of his whereabouts, but also so that you could be confident about you, where you will be on that day, that, that you pass from this life into the next. You see, one of the greatest blessings of God's word is that it does not leave us to wonder concerning our eternal state, but clearly marks out how we can confidently know. You see, I am sure that many of these truths are not foreign to you. In Romans chapter 3.23, it states that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. In Romans 6.23, it states that the price of our sin and our, rebellious, and our rebelliousness is death, but there is hope. You see, the verse continues with these words, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God came on a rescue mission for us, she writes. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. Then he died taking our place so that we could be forgiven and empowered by him to live a life worthy of his sacrifice. It's not something that can be earned. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith that this not of your own doing. Instead, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. 1 John 5.13 tells us that all this was written so that we may know with absolute certainty that we have eternal life. She closes the letter this way. I am certain. I am certain of my father's place in heaven, not because of the sum of good deeds he had done in his lifetime, but because he has accepted the free gift of salvation that God offered him and lived his life as a witness to God's great love and mercy and redeeming power. My prayer is that you, will, you too will accept his gift so that you may know that your life and future are secure in him. It's been my prayer for many of you this week that you would lay hold of the gift that Jesus offers you, that you might finally, joyfully receive him as your savior and surrender to him as your good king, that you would begin today to live a life that is characterized by a sacrificial love and service to him and to his people and his purposes in the world. I long for that, and I have prayed eagerly for that. And for all of us this week, my prayer has been that we might cling tightly to Jesus and his gospel, that we might, that we might see how it transforms our hearts and our lives every day. You see, the amazing thing about the gospel is that it doesn't just change everything about our lives on the day that Jesus returns. You see, it changes everything about our lives on every day until that one. 
You see, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he also writes these words about how trusting in the person and the work of Jesus to completely make us right with God and secure our eternal status before him. It changes our lives today. He writes this, he says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, that's the message of the gospel. The king has come. He has come to save and to renew so that we might eagerly long for his coming, living lives that are changed every day by his good graciousness. You see, that's what we remember every week when we take communion. That's what we're celebrating every week when we dip the bread in the juice and when we take communion together. See, what we're remembering is all that Jesus has done for us. We're remembering his body and his blood broken and shed for us so that we might be cleansed and made new, ready for his kingly judgment on the day of his return. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. You see, it does not make you ready for his return or not. You see, instead, it is an opportunity, it is a chance for us to remember Jesus, his person, his work, all that he has done for us to remind ourselves of who he is and and all that he has done so that we might set our eyes on the king who has come and who is coming again so that we might be filled with a love and a gratitude and a longing that fuels a life that is given to him, has lived for him and for his purposes and for his glory You see the bread and the juice there in the back. You just take the bread and you dip it in the juice. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship, you can go, as you feel led, to go back and take communion. You won't be dismissed. So if you put your trust in Jesus, if he is your savior and your king, then during our time of worship, go back, take communion, do it as a joyful remembrance of all that the king has done of his readiness that he has given to you by your faith in his life and his death, given for you. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not this morning, if Jesus is not your savior and your king, I need you to know that you are welcome here. You are welcome here. This place is for you. This people is for you. This church is for you. But communion is not yet ready for you. It is not right at this point. And I would encourage you, during our time of worship, sing, talk with God. Be honest with him about what's going on in your heart and the questions you have and the things that you are wrestling with. Come find me. I'd love to talk with you. As we take communion this morning, as we sing, as we celebrate the great king who has come and given himself for us and the great king who is coming again, I want to encourage you, as you sing, as you talk with God, ask him, Are you ready for his return? How does his just judgment need to shape your life today and every day in light of it? Ask him that he might remind you of the good news of his return and of the blessing that awaits all those whose lives reveal a relationship with him. Let that fuel your days. Let it fuel your weeks. Let it fuel your years given to him as the great king who has come to rescue and to lead you. To that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come this morning. God, we are so grateful for you and for your word. We're thankful that you might keep it for us, that you might 
preserved for us so that we might know you as we see it. And so, God, we come this morning and we ask that by your spirit you might empower us. God, that you might continually be changing our lives so that our lives reveal and reflect the reality of our relationship with you. God, I pray that people here this morning, they would not be marked by fear or guilt or shame. God, if anything, I pray that you might bring a gracious conviction about the reality of of their hearts towards you. But more than anything, God, I pray that you would call us in love to you, in, in love for you, in response to all that you have done for us, to long to give ourselves back to you and to your people and to this world so that all might know who you are and, and all that you have done. So we come, Jesus, thankful for who you are, the great Savior and King and the just judge. God, make us ready for your return. God, for our good, more than anything, for your great glory, we pray. Amen.